Thank you so much for coming to Palm Vista Community Church this morning. My name is Al Pino, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my great joy to greet you this morning. If you are a guest with us for the very first time, we have a Guest Connect card for you. You should have received one as you came in this morning. And simply fill that card out and let us know about your visit. And then we would love to greet you right through these doors at the end of the service. We have a small reception prepared just for you, some snacks and a a gift for you. And so we just want you to feel at home here at Palm Vista and and just ask you to to just enjoy uh, what God would have for you. In a moment, we're going to receive the offering, and we do not expect you to give it all, but just drop that card in there. So ushers, would you make your way down? And uh, if you would like to give in the offering and you need an envelope, if you're a member, please raise your hand. The ushers will serve you. And uh, just wanted to make you aware of something. Uh, I believe last Sunday was the uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And uh, this morning, we just want to acknowledge that. And uh, there's a passage in Hebrews 13. It says, remember those in prison as though you were with them. And so as we go to prayer for just asking the Lord to bless this offering we're about to give him. Uh, I want you to know that much of what you give uh, goes really for ministry uh, here in the United States, but also in other places and uh, nations that we actually have the privilege of going into and serving where the church would be under pressure, even persecution. So let's take a moment right now and let's pray for them. And I'm just reminded, I, I actually have a phone call next Tuesday afternoon with a gentleman who is, uh, who's planning a church in North Africa. The country will remain unnamed right now. And he's bringing a team in, and part of that team is his own family, his grown children and his grandchildren. So let's pray. Lord God, I pray right now for those who are under pressure, those who are under oppression, some who are sitting in prisons, some who have been beaten like we read about here in Acts. And they're rejoicing for the, with the privilege of having suffered for your name. We don't quite understand that, Lord. We live a very comfortable life here. But we want to pray for them now. We want to join our voices. We want to lift up our voices and pray that you would give them fresh courage. Lord, care for the wives whose husbands are in a jail right now. Care for those children who haven't seen perhaps their parents or maybe they're orphaned. Lord, would you continue to care for your people as they preach your word boldly in the face of physical threat and harm and even those that have shed their blood. Oh, Father, have mercy and may your word go forth. It is unstoppable. Your word, the proclamation of Jesus is unstoppable. And we pray for those who are courageously preaching it in countries that oppress and persecute the church. Lord, receive our offering. We give it joyfully. And for many, it is a sacrifice. It pales in comparison to the sacrifice of others. But it's the sacrifice you're calling us to make. So may we do it joyfully. Thanking you for the privilege of giving. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers are serving us, uh, I would like to draw your attention to the pastoral letter that we sent to all those on the informed email list. We, we send a digital bulletin, as it were, every week. I believe it's on Wednesday. We sent a special pastoral edition on Thursday, I believe it was. And it concerns the election and the results of the election. And so as your pastors, we want to draw your attention to Scripture, draw your attention to what it says in both articles, in that informed e-bulletin, and to the scripture in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. This is what 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 says, if the guys could get that up there. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17 say the following. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That should settle it right there. Should it not? 
that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The pagan emperor who was probably persecuting Christians at that time. That should settle it too, shouldn't it? Oh, friends, let us be people of the book. Let us not be swayed by how the world handles these things. Let us do what God tells us. Though we may disagree with the moral agenda, as I'm sure Peter disagreed with the moral agenda of the emperor, regular practice in Rome was to throw babies on trash heaps, and Christians would go and rescue them. Rome was a, was a pagan, sensual, godless culture. Peter knew that. He was a pastor in Rome. And he's saying, honor the emperor. Why? Not because he agrees with him, but because he knows that every institution on earth is under God's control, and we trust God and know ultimately he and not human institutions are in control. So let's act like it. No one knew better the oppressive control of an emperor. In fact, Peter would, would lose his life. He, his life would be taken by the emperor. Horribly martyred. But he knew God's control as greater reality. And so must we. And the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Gives us more biblical wisdom and commands, actually. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 says this, First of all, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Do you want to do what is pleasing in the sight of God your Savior? Then you pray for our leaders, who desires all people to be saved, not all there is, all kinds of people, not every single person, but all people, Greek, Jew, Parthian, Mede, Scythian, Roman, liberal, conservative. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher. Now notice, Paul tells us to pray for the leadership. Why? Because the focus is preaching the gospel. That's the main thing, guys. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. That's curious, isn't it, that Paul would say that in Scripture? A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This context is the command to pray for our leaders. It is the same reason why we give, why we gave just now, that the gospel may go forth, that we may proclaim the good news of Jesus. Lord, make a space that our, our lives would be quiet so that we'd be able to live godly, dignified lives. Why? So we can preach the gospel. This is the eternal purpose for which we are called. And so we pray right now for our leaders with an eye to God's unstoppable plan no election can stop God's plan. Now before I pray, before I pray, I think it would be very, very, very appropriate for me to acknowledge a subset within our church. And I happen to belong to that subset. As we do pray for our nation, and we're called to pray for our nation. And I, I pray that our nation would prosper. If you read those two articles, I pray that, that those leaders who are sinning by uh, approving things that are wrong would repent. I pray for that, of course. As I'm sure there were prayers for the emperor for 300 years. I, I do love this country. <laughs> but my citizenship is primarily... In heaven. This country will come and go. My parents are immigrants in this country. I, I've often sat and thought, what would it be like if I picked up and left this country at my age right now and went to another country where I did not speak the language? 
and found a job and tried to raise my children in a totally foreign culture. It'd be difficult. But as a Christian, see, I'm 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 an exile anyways down here. So I do want to, though, having said all that, I want to honor a group. And that's a group of men and women who are currently serving in the military or have served. Veterans Day here is upon us. If, you, if that's you, would you please just stand to your feet for a moment? We just want to say thank you. If you're currently serving or have served in the military, would you please stand to your feet right now? Okay. Great. Stay standing. Stay standing. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, let's pray for our, the nation that the Lord has providentially brought us to and, and, and caused us to be citizens of here on earth. Lord, I lift up our leaders. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy upon us. We are, we are a nation that richly deserves your wrath. We, we, have, we have done horrible things. We have laws on our books, oh God, that mock you. We have forbidden the, the, the speech of you, even in schools like this one during the week. Lord, we, we have committed many, many bad, wrong things. And we, as your people, as citizens of this nation, just stand as, as I'm sure Peter stood and Paul stood. We lift up our hands and say, have mercy, O God. Send your spirit, Father. Lord, even what we prayed earlier, that there would be revival. That it would change not just individuals, but cultures. We pray that. That there would be a change in our laws that allow babies to be murdered. There would be a change in our laws that defile marriage, make a mockery of what you say about it. There would be change in our laws where we permit fraud and evil and wrong and oppressive things are done. Oh God, have mercy upon us. But we do pray for these leaders. We don't understand fully Peter's words, but we we want to honor the emperor, the office, because you are king, you are God, you are the ultimate authority. Lord, show us how to do that. Lord, keep a watch over our mouths, over our fingers when we type things on the internet. Lord, give us a heart that pleases you. Maybe put as much energy into praying for others as we do critiquing them. Oh God. Forgive us, your people. We've not walked in a way pleasing to you. And help us to do so in Jesus' name. Have mercy that your word may go forth powerfully. That we may be able to give to missions, to church plants in North Africa. Have mercy, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, it's my joy this morning to introduce to you Dr. Henry Krabendam. I believe Dr. Krabendam is originally from Holland. Is that correct? Born in Holland. Uh, He was a colleague of our own Cal Beisner's uh, at Covenant College. He said he he taught there for over 30 years. Is that correct, Dr. Krabendam? Okay. He is now Professor Emeritus. What that means is that he just has that status, okay, forever until he passes. But now he's dedicating himself to schools of evangelism around the world. So I think I mean, the Lord just gave us these words this morning. I didn't plan to say anything about the Great Commission. That was, I felt like the Lord just put that on our hearts through Scripture. And I believe the songs even, that song, He's the God of the City. So it's great that you're here this morning. I asked him, how would you want me to introduce you? He said, tell them I'm married with eight, with eight grandchildren. All right, I like that one. I have four, so I'm catching up. Uh, Dr. Krabendam was ordained in 1960. Like I said, he was a professor at Covenant College by 1973. And he's been a missionary to Uganda since 1983. He's accompanied by his wife, Beth. And so, church, can we welcome Dr. Henry Karabandam? Well, it's customary to tell when you speak somewhere that it is a delight and a joy. And it is. (laughs) It was specifically delightful when I received my assignment four or five months ahead of time, Act 6, the verses 1 through 7, one of my favorite passages. So I rejoiced about that. Now before I will read it, let me share with you that when I study the Bible, I would like to do it in three ways. First of all, with my mind. 
So you read commentaries and you try to put everything together. But then with your heart. And your heart is the area where you have faith and repentance. And when you have faith and repentance, you receive forgiveness. And the third way is with your life. Uh, That is also how the Bible explains understanding of the mind, of the heart, and of your life. And I found that if you read the scriptures with your mind and your heart and your life with a view to godliness, you will find things in the word of God that are there, but nobody else sees it until you indeed uh, uh, approach the scripture in this threefold fashion. And uh, the result of my study of these seven verses, I hope, reflects uh, that. So let me read the verses, chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not fitting for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Let me pray. Father God, as we exposit this word, we ask you for the presence of the Spirit of God, so that we can speak with power and receive the message with understanding, not only with our mind, but also with our heart and also in our lives. That is my plea this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now you notice this section starts with a crisis. And as somebody uh, said at one time, don't let a crisis go to waste. Uh, Act upon it as soon as you can. And there are several crises in the first few chapters of Acts, and I cannot mention them all, but they take action, and that's the way it ought to be. Now, what is the crisis? Well, there were widows, and some of those widows, they were all Jews. Uh, They were born in Greece, and others were born in Jerusalem. Now, it looks like that when you meet people who are of your own kind, you gravitate to them. Now, I don't think this is a matter of intentional racism. But very likely it was unintentional racism, at least at best. All right, that they took care of their own. And uh, well, if you uh, uh, came from another section of the world, uh, often you would go without food. And of course, uh, there was a complaint. And the apostles deal with that complaint immediately. Now, what I'm going to share with you, ladies and gentlemen, that the next verses deal with the emerging threefold revival ministry of a revival church. Now, let me first share with you that there are ten elements in revival, and I just mention them quickly, and then I'll return to it at the end of the Lord willing. Ten marks of revival. There's always mighty prayer. There's mighty preaching. The apostles prayed for 10 days before the Holy Spirit came down. Anna prayed for 50 years. Daniel prayed for 12 hours. Nehemiah prayed for days. Mighty preaching. Now, we won't be able to get into Peter's sermon, but that is mighty preaching. And then you have mighty conversions, 3,000 and later on 5,000. 
And then when there are mighty conversions, there are mighty assemblies. They're all together. They are devoted, devoted together to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And when you have mighty assemblies, you get mighty holiness. You take a close look at the first part of uh, uh, the book of Acts. It's awesome. And when you get mighty holiness, you get mighty generosity. They didn't call anything their own. And Barnabas was even willing to sell his property as so did others. And then mighty generosity turns into mighty evangelism. Grassroots evangelism. And the first uh, 12 chapters of Acts uh, is a testimony to that fact. And when you have mighty evangelism, you have a mighty impact on society. Think of the Apostle Paul. After he's in Ephesus, he, <laughs> he, uh, uh, the people began to have a riot after he preaches. And um, in the, earlier in the 17th chapter, uh, they turned the world upside down. So there is somewhere a mighty impact upon society. And that mighty impact, in addition to that, it always takes place under mighty leadership. Uh, James, Peter, Paul. And they're always in mighty combat. Always. Now those ten elements, those ten marks, are the marks of a revival church. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the benchmark for the church of all ages. We either rise to that occasion... Or somehow there's a problem. We have left our first love. We have a name that we live, but we are dead. And we are lukewarm. And Jesus, I'll spew you out of my mouth. All right? Now, it's in this context of a revival church that you're going to get an emerging revival ministry. And it's a threefold ministry. Now, first of all, there's a structural component. First of all, we notice that there are apostles. And they were together and they summoned the congregation. And they talk about the issues. And they say, we have to be in the Word. It is not fitting for us that we are going to serve the tables. Now, uh, is it below their dignity? Of course not. But what then is the problem? Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you have 3,000 conversions... And then later, 5,000 conversions. The leadership is busy to share the word of God. And often the leadership, especially the elders, is not busy because there are no new converts. And then they often do the work of the deacons. And the deacons can only uh, open the doors and close the doors on Sunday. So here you have a structural issue. It is not fitting for us that we are going to serve the tables. That is the first aspect of that structure. And then there are servers, if you wish. They're going to serve the tables. They are taking care of the logistics. Later on I'm going to share with you what those logistics are. They have to take care that things are done decently and in order in the congregation. In this particular framework that the widows are going to get enough to eat even if they were not born in Jerusalem. And then finally in the third part there is an increase of the gospel in a powerful way. Many uh, the number of disciples continue to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And even a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is what you call the spontaneous expansion of the church. And I do not know whether you are familiar with the booklet uh, by Roland Allen. The spontaneous um, expansion of the church. Read it, read it, read it, read it. Somehow there is a spontaneity in Christians who come to know the Lord Jesus and they cannot keep their mouths shut. And so what we find in the structural component that there are apostles who share the word, that there are people, uh, server, servants who are able to take care of the logistics and there's also an evangelistic component. 
Now, as I understand, this is only structural, and I have not given it much content yet. But that comes under the second point. There is a substantive component. What do the apostles say? We have to be in the Word. More precisely, we have to be in prayer and the Word. Now, a friend of mine once said, you know, everyone should start always with prayer, and then you have to go to the Word. Uh, don't turn it around. Well, uh, that is a problem because J- Jesus turns it around in John 15. He says, if my word abides in you, you will pray what you wish. And uh, First Tim- uh, Timothy, the fourth chapter says that everything is being sanctified by the word and by prayer. You see, this is what I call the complementarity of truth. And the greatest sin in the church is against the complementarity of truth. God is love. Yeah, but, but God is holy. Uh, God is holy. But, but, but. The word but already shows that there is conflict and it is warfare. My dear brothers and sisters, of course you have to be in the prayer and the word in that context. But before that, you're in the word and in prayer. Now, what does it mean to be in the word and prayer before I will share with you what it means to be in the prayer and the word? Well, if you're in the Word and prayer, you are Bible-holics. Now, you know what a Bible-holic is? Now, between you and me, pastor, and uh, between you and me, I am not so sure that you find many Bible-holics in this congregation. And I include myself. A Bible-holic is just like an alcoholic. It is not just a person who cannot get enough. That is true. But when he doesn't get it, he is retching in pain. Now, how many Bible-holics are there in your congregation that when they don't get the Word of God, they are retching in pain and they are driven back to the Word of God? If you do that and you read the Scripture at least one hour a day, You can read through the scriptures four times a year. And if you read it with your mind and you read it with your heart and you read it with your life, you're going to see things in scripture. And when you do it again and again and again, you will not forget it. It will be memorable. It will stick with you. How about the prayer holic? Do it, Lord. 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 As I shared with you. When Daniel, who knew the word, recognized that it would be 70 years before they would uh, return, he started to pray for 12 hours. Do it, Lord. An intolerable burden for that word of God to become a reality. And when the people returned, but Jerusalem was not, re- the walls were not rebuilt, Nehemiah picked up on that and he prayed for days. Lord, make sure that those walls will be rebuilt. And when you come in the New Testament, prior to the great revival, when Anna understood that if there were no Savior, there would be an impenetrable darkness that would never, ever be lifted up. And she went to prayer. And we met her first when she was 84. She got married maybe when she was 27. After seven years, she became a widow. And when she was 34 years old, she went into the temple. And she did not emerge until 50 years later when the Messiah was born. And when she told everybody the Redeemer has come, nobody cared. And eventually they killed him. And the apostles understood. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come down. They don't have the power to to combat that darkness. And without the Holy Spirit. The darkness will never be convicted. And therefore they prayed up a storm. For ten days send us the Holy Spirit. And when the Bible gives a promise, it's always a lifeline. 
I've heard people say, well, the promise of God is for my children, so I'm going to see and sit down and see what God is going to do. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wonderful. Give me my lazy chair. Lazy boy. Lazy girl. No, that's not the way it works. Every time that you have a life in the water and you're drowning, and we just came from a cruise, so we know we, were there, we started uh, right after that storm. If you're in the midst of a storm, and that in the storm of life, and you have a promise of God, it's a lifeline, and you're going to go on your knees, and you say, do it, Lord, do it, Lord, do it, Lord, do it, Lord. And if you don't do it, there is no future. Now, that's a prayer holic. Now, were those disciples, Bible holics and prayer holics? Of course they were. The Apostle Peter. Where do you think he gets Joel uh, 2 from when he meets him? He gets it, does it get out of his hat? No, of course not. He knew that Old Testament from beginning to end. And he quoted it verbatim. This is what is happening, folks. He was a Bible-holic. And a prayer-holic. <laughs> we know that the Apostle Paul was praying all the time. You know, prayer-holic. Now, what is the substantive message for the Apostles? It's not that they absorb the word as Bible-holics and prayer-holics, but that they pass on the word to the 3,000 and the 5,000 that were entrusted to their care. So where do you start? Before I talk to you, I start to pray first. I already know the Bible, but now I'm going to pray. And you know why? Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in your life, nothing is going to happen. Do you know that if I commune with you, there's always an enemy in you when I talk to you? Always. In communication, when I talk to the pastor, there's always an enemy in him. Always. And in me too. We call it the flesh. And so I can, I can perturb that flesh. I can provoke it by being upset, by angry, and then <laughs> you're going to respond in kind. So first of all, uh, I, uh, I don't overcome my own flesh. Then I perk up his flesh, and he loses his, uh, the battle with his flesh, and we are in a full-fetched flight. Fight. <laughs> you see? So always remember, when you talk to somebody in the other person, if he is a person is a Christian, there's always an enemy there. We call it the flesh. Don't provoke it. Secondly, if the person is not a Christian, there are two enemies. There is a rebel heart and the flesh. So we don't have a chance without the Holy Spirit. And therefore we don't have a chance without prayer. And therefore those men say we have to pray. We have to talk to 3,000 people. 3,000 people uh, with 3,000 elements of flesh in them. We are not going to get anywhere. (laughs) And therefore we have to pray. And when they pray, they take the word and begin to apply the word. Now, have you ever tried to apply the word to a, to a person? Like a doctor, you have to have a diagnosis. You take time before you're able to hit the right button. You see what I mean? And that's, you understand uh, why they say it's not fitting for us to serve the tables. Not below our, de- our dignity. But God has given us a substantive task to perform. And we have to be in prayer and we have to be in the Word. Not taking it in, but applying it to the people of God from beginning to end. That is the first elements of the apostles. And secondly, the servers. As you notice, I did not call them deacons. And I'll tell you in a moment why I do not call them deacons at this particular moment. But uh, what do they have to be? They have to be full of the Spirit and full of faith and full of wisdom. Now, if you want to take uh, somebody to take care of your building, this is not your building, but if it's your building, you have to clean the toilets. And uh, if you have uh, people who are widows, you have to serve the table. We will not allow you to be even involved unless you're full of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, the flesh acts up in you. So it has to be full of the Holy Spirit. The flesh, according to Romans 7, is like the the Chernobyl plant on the inside. The radiation comes out all the time. That's what the Apostle Paul says. 
I cannot do anything because of that enemy. It's a powerful enemy. And you know what happened when the Chernobyl plant blew up? The people in the northern Scandinavian countries were very angry with the Soviet government because you are destroying us. And you know how many people died in that, uh, in that, in the process? Well, the Soviet government knew that they had to do something about it. And they were not Japanese when the tsunami hit the, 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 the plants. They sent 5,000 laborers to that plant. And they encased the whole plant in steel and forced concrete. And they all died. Now that is the kind of flesh that you have on the inside. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Now what is, how do you encase that? How do you encase the Chernobyl plant on the inside? There's only one way. The Bible says you have indwelling sin. That is the flesh. But you also have the in-indwelling Holy Spirit. The word in is doubled up in Romans 8. There's the only one who can encase the flesh so that you don't radiate and if you destruction and if you're not full of the Holy Spirit what do you think is going to happen you radiate destruction that's why the, uh, David could say I am uh, keep, not keeping anything on the inside I'm giving you the righteousness of God to the great congregation awesome individual hear what he says a verse later more numerous are my iniquities than the hairs of my head. That is the consummate Christian. Do you believe that? And you look in the mirror. You know what you should do when you look in the mirror? You should look at God and you say, say first of all, you look, look up. Lord, thank you for the goodness that you have given me. From beginning to end. And then you look in the mirror and you point the finger. And he said, you are not good enough. Ever. And the moment you say good enough, the best, it always becomes the enemy of the best. Because you don't want to move on. Well, I'm good enough, you know. Why do you want me to do this? And why do you want me to do that? I said, well... When you say that to me, I already know that you think you're good enough. And if any one of you thinks I'm good enough, it's not only that you have a problem, but you are a problem to everybody else. Because you don't want to listen. You're good enough. And brothers and sisters, you're filled with wisdom. Spirit, you have the containment building against the flesh on the inside, filled with faith. Oh, you can talk about faith at length. But faith is not just a knowledge and a trust. That's what people usually say. And that is what comes out of the early Reformation versus Roman Catholicism. It's not just ignorance. No, there's knowledge. Well, there is assent. Uh, well, there is trust, like a chair. You, you know it's a chair, you trust the chair, and you sit in the chair. Now, that's the early Reformation issue and uh, explanation. Now, that's not wrong, but Scripture goes beyond it. The later Reformation tells us that faith is appropriation. You put your arms around, and that's what happened to Abraham. I'm going to give you as many people as there are stars in the heavens. What did Abraham do? He put his arms around the prophet. Arms around appropriations, like a little spacecraft that docks with a big one. You dock with Jesus. It goes way beyond trust. Trust is an element. It goes way beyond 
When you know that you have to pay the tithe, you put your arms around it, right? And how many of you don't pay the tithe? I don't know. I know that in my own denomination, we, across the board, give only 5% in our own tradition. I don't know how, but it's in yours. But if you do not pay the tithe, the scripture says that you're a thief and a robber. And if you know that uh, more than the hairs of your head are your iniquities, uh, somebody points it out to you and say, yeah, there's another one. Yeah, there's another one. And of course you go to Jesus. But that's faith. You put your arms around Jesus. You put his arms around the word. It's word, you put the arms about the Lord, Holy Spirit. You approach your arms around the triune God. No wonder that those priests become obedient, show obedience to the faith, because they put their arms around them. Well, if you want to take care of the tables, you better have that plus wisdom so that you give everybody what the person needs, you know. I would imagine that, uh, if I may have some humor, uh, that uh, they might have said, well, eat a little less because it shows a little too much, okay? <laughs> so so that, that is practical wisdom. No, no, uh, no attack intended, but that is what I get out of the text. Now, as you notice, I already share with you, um, um, why don't I call them deacons? Well, that really gets into the next point, but uh, the emergence of the structure. The apostles, they hit the crisis, <laughs> well, we need people to take care of the logistics. And the logistics happen to be the tables, so go and go and get down to the tables. And then uh, th the third substantive component, as you notice, the apostles bring uh, the word and uh, the prayer and the word. Uh, the servers must be full of the spirit and wisdom and faith and wisdom to take care of the table. But how about after that? There's an increase in the disciples. Do you notice, ladies and gentlemen, the word disciples is mentioned at least two times in this whole section? I'm going to be honest with you. I, I was always told that uh, you have to evangelize and then you have to uh, disciple people, okay? Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't think that is a proper way to handle the Word of God. You make disciples, number one, and then you train them. Make disciples, and then you train them. How do you make disciples? Well, the word disciple is an empty term. It only means that you're a learner. Now, have you ever noticed that when people, Peter preached evangelistically, that how many people were co converted at that, son, that, that day? 3,000. What happened to those 3,000? They all came to church the next Sunday. Mighty assemblies. Now, have you noticed that and that is statistic from uh, big evangelistic associations that when you have uh, 3,000 people coming forward to a, to a, um, uh, on a crusade, do you know how many people come to church the next Sunday? 5%. Now, there's a man in India who noticed that he got 30%. He said, it's better than normal, than usual, but uh, Lord, what's the problem? Is there a problem with my message? And there certainly is. What do I preach evangelistically? What does Peter preach? First of all, he calls them murderers. Okay? Now that is pretty uh, strong. Well, Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see and enter. So Nicodemus, I'm sorry. When you tell me that I am a teacher who comes from God, you're wrong. And you, you cannot see and you cannot enter. You're a blind rebel. I am not God, a, t a teacher who comes from God. I am God who comes to teach and to die. And you miss it for 100% because you're a blind rebel. What does he say to the woman at the well? 
After a long introduction, call your husband. I don't have any. I said, that's right. Because he had five of them. And he even may have said, don't tell me they all died. And the woman with whom you live now is not your, your husband. Lady, you're a hell-bound adulteress. And to the Jews in, in John 8, when the Jews in John 8 said, we believe, we believe, he said, wait a minute, if you want to be my disciple, you will do what I am saying and you abide in the word. And you know, a lot of uh, flack back and forth and finally Jesus says, you do not listen to me, you refuse to listen to me, and frankly, you cannot listen to me because you're a child of the devil. So what does the apostle Peter said? Hey, you're a blind rebel, you're murdered. He said, uh, you're a hell-bound whatever, you're a murderer. And uh, he said, you didn't abide in the word. You're a child of the devil, you're a murderer. And they understood that. So there are three elements there that the Apostle, the Lord Jesus mentioned in John 2, 3, 4, and 8. And the Apostle Peter does exactly the same in Acts 2. Repent unto the forgiveness of sins and you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard anybody preach that? I'm going to be honest with you. In my denomination, I've never heard anybody give the threefold gospel. Repent! You get forgiveness and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, you'll be in the workshop of the Holy Spirit the next Sunday. And if you accept Jesus and to go to heaven, that is not the gospel. Because the Bible says repentance come, uh, means that you, that you rent your heart. And the Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. All its thoughts are only evil continually. In fact, the Bible says like a cobra on the inside. And the Bible says, I will, I, if you want to be forgiven, I wash you of all your filth. And the Apostle Paul says, my filth was like, is like excrement. And uh, the Bible says you had the gift of the Holy Spirit in order to overcome the indwelling sin. You cannot do it in any other way. And James says, <laughs> there's poison in the tongue. He calls it poison. So we start with three problems. We start with a cobra heart and with an excrement past and a poisonous life. And if you don't do that, you don't have repentance. But I want to get rid of the three problems. But thank you, oh my Lord, that you gave me the cross. Because on the cross, the cobra heart is killed. On the cross, the excrement is washed. And on the cross, the poison is removed. Romans 6 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 10. And out of the grave comes the heart of Jesus. And comes the righteousness of Jesus. And comes the holiness of Jesus. Which is applied to us through the Holy Spirit. He puts that heart in us in regeneration. He seals the, just, the, the righteous in justification. And he applies the holiness of Jesus in our daily lives. And I promise you, my dear brothers and sisters, if it dawns on us that we have, the, that the Apostle Peter said, you have a cobra heart, you're a murderer, you have an excrement past, you killed, you have a poisonous life, look what happened. And when it begins to become clear, and you begin to be cut to the heart, as, as, as Ezekiel tells us, I will take the heart of stone out of you. I will wash you of all your filth and I will put the Holy Spirit within you and you will loathe yourself and you will cry out to me, please give me the solution. Now let me ask you, if <laughs> this young man smiles so nicely, if this young man cries out for the three solutions and the Spirit of God comes upon him, what do you think he's going to do next Sunday? He comes to the church. Because he wants to have the obedience of faith. And here you see the substantive component, ladies and gentlemen. The apostles who pray and apply the word. The servers who fill to the spirit of wisdom and faith and wisdom. 
And the increase in terms of the word that produces disciples. And what is the progressive component? Well, as you notice, you don't let a crisis go to waste, all right? Uh, If you are apostles and you get problems in the congregation, like women who don't get enough to eat, uh, well, you're going to move onward. And you, uh, you, you emerge into dealing with the issues. And you do this every week. But you see it right here. Also in our, in our setting, ladies and gentlemen. The apostles, they are kind of the elders, the pastors, teachers. They emerge into pastors, teachers in the congregation who must apply the word of God to the people. And the servers, they turn into deacons. As you notice... Now, I will uh, mention the word deacon. This is the beginning of the diaconate. They are not deacons. But later on, that is emerging out of the apostles, emerges the pastor-teacher office. Out of uh, the service emerges, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the diaconal office. Because these men, later on, they evangelize. So you understand, it is an emerging structure right here of the church. And uh, in terms of the spontaneous expansion of the church, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, there you have the evangelistic office that is beginning to emerge. Uh, According to the book of Ephesians, you have pastors, teachers, you have evangelists, and according to Philippians, you uh, you have deacons. So here you see the emerging structure of the church. Now, before I go on, I promised you I would uh, ask, uh, uh, tell you a little bit more about the deacons. There's no job description uh, for the deacons in the New Testament. And as a teacher of Christian doctrine, that bothered me at times. Until I recognized that that is the job description. The logistics, whatever. You have pastors, teachers. They need logistics, right? Right? You have evangelists. They need logistics, right? Now, whatever they need, the deacons must supply. So if your pastor is too busy to brush his teeth, (laughs) your deacons must brush his teeth. So to say that the, the diaconal ministry is a ministry of mercy or serving the tables, that is too reductionistic. A deacon must do everything so that the pastor teacher can be full throttle in his ministry and an evangelist can be full throttle in his ministry. But how do you get that now? Let me just top it off by what I think the emerging uh, church, uh, the emerging ministry ought to be today. As you notice, uh, it is quite clear there are three offices left in the church. There is the evangelist, uh, according to Ephesians 4, and there is the pastor-teacher, and there is the deacon. Now, what must they do? The substantive uh, section already told you that. The pastor-teacher must be in the prayer and the word, apply, apply, apply. And you know, there was a black lady uh, many years ago who came to me and said, I want to be a member of the church, but you've got to swear an oath before I do. I said, that's heavy. Tell me what is the oath. And she said to me, if you see anything in my life that is displeasing to God, you have to tell me immediately. If you don't, I will not become a member of this church. What do you think of that, huh? What I would like for this congregation to do, email you and put themselves on the line and say, Pastor L, if there's anything in my life that is displeasing to God, I want to be have have the obedience of the faith. Tell me immediately. I'll tell you, it will sanitize the congregation. Would you like to do that? Would you like to write an email like this? Be honest with me. Ask yourself. If you say, well, I'm not sure, then I wonder whether you're born again. Or you maybe 
ask your pastor, teacher, that's your job, do it to me. If there's anything in my life that is displeasing to you. You see, that is the pastor, teacher. Then the evangelist must go out with the threefold gospel. I like to give, if you were closer, I would say, give me a high five. And you would smile, right? You already smiled. And I say, give me a high three. If it were in Uganda, I would call you up, but I've, I will just uh, stick to the formal approach uh, in the United States. Give me a high three. And then you wonder, and I have your mind. So, do you notice that if I have your emotions and your mind, I can say what I want? And then I tell you, you have three problems, sir, and God has three solutions. I'll take the stony heart out of you, give your heart of flesh. I'll wash you while you're filled and put the Holy Spirit within you. And the funny thing, funny, it's not really funny, but kind of funny, that if you give me your emotions and your mind, you never, you never tell me to stop talking. Because <laughs> you're already in the web. You know what I mean? And I can, I can be like a spider. I don't take the life, I suck the life out of you, but put the life in you. All right? You have three. That's the evangelist. And the deacon, as I shared with you, must do everything. Everything so that the pastor, teacher, and the evangelist can do their job. All the logistics. That's what they must do. But there is something else they must do. They must train the people to do, to speak and to serve and to evangelize. Matthew 8, 28, we must evangelize daily. Ephesians 4, we must speak daily. Hebrews 3, we must exhort daily. And uh, Galatians 5, we must serve daily. So if you become a member of this church, and the pastor says to you, okay, I'm going to train you in doing one, all those three. I have a little um, um, manual of evangelism, a little manual in speaking or teaching, and a little manual in serving. I want you to study it. I want, you to take, I want to take you out. Because training has, is teaching, then modeling, then observing, then refining, and then certifying. That's why I go to Uganda. 30 years. I've put them in the pressure cooker of obedience. Two and a half weeks. In the mornings, the first week I teach. In the afternoon and the evening, we go out. And you know what I found? Oh, something awesome that I had never expected when I went out. When I put them for 80% in the field and only for 20% in the classroom, the gifts began to pop out. Speaking gift, serving gifts, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and evangelistic gift, Matthew 4. And all of a sudden... You see the structure in your totality. You have three offices. You have three commands. And you have three gifts. And to me, the gifts are imperative, indispensable, central, essential. Because when you have the gift of evangelism, the gift of speaking, and the gift of serving... You become unstoppable. I see it in your pastor. Unstoppable. How many people in your congregation are unstoppable? When I ask people that, they never come up more than 15%. And now you understand why we are losing the culture war. Now I agree. For 100%, we submit. But why was there the downgrade? Were there enough evangelists? Were there enough pastors, teachers? Were there enough deacons? That's my burden. In Psalm 80, you find exactly the same thing. There's a vine. Where's the vine? Gone. Lord, give us revival. We need revival. When a man in the White House today tells us that same-sex marriages is the name of the game, it's because the Church of Jesus Christ has not been in combat. And if you go with me to Africa, you can, you, before, you, before you can run, you've got to crawl. 
We can train you in evangelism and in speaking and in serving. When you look at those people, and the people are so wonderful when you come, why didn't you come to us yesterday? If I knock on the door here, ah, 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 ah. Evangelistic, you see? And you've got to learn to be filled with the Spirit. You have power. And to see the, sp the people, the Spirit work at the people to whom you talk. And if you begin to see that, there's a joy and a glory that comes in the church of Jesus. So that is why I love Act 6. And I, it, was, it was happily providential that you asked me to speak on this, you see, because this is where my heart is burning, the emerging church. But now we have emerged. We are at the end of the New Testament. We must have three offices, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and deacon. We must, they must do their work day and night. When you're filled with the Spirit of God, and they, and they must train the people to evangelize, to speak, and to serve. And they must do it in the field so that the gifts will pop out. And when the gifts pop out and there are young men and young women with the gift of evangelism, the gift of speaking, the gift of serving, if ever you need a new leadership, you have no problem. Because there's the man is unstoppable and he can become an evangelist. There's the man who is uh, unstoppable in speaking. Turn him into pastor, teacher. There's the man who is unstoppable in serving. Put him in the deacon so that it becomes a snowball. And that snowball is so cold that it will destroy the fire of hell. Amen? But if the, if the fire of hell begins to melt the snowball, what do you think is going to happen? You get people like you and me. <laughs> Forgive me. But this is my heart. And I see people. They don't even know. They just came off a cruise. Fat bellies. <laughs> I mean, I think I've gained a few pounds myself. So I, I have no problem with that. But what is their future, you see? So we have to, we have to go back to Acts 6, 1 through 7. The apostles teaching the pastors, teachers to move. The deacons to move. And the evangelists to move. And the officers are the captains. The gifted people are the lieutenants. And the officers must use the lieutenants to train everyone. So that there's going to be glory. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And that is what a revival is all about. The experienced, displayed, celebrated and spreading glory of God. In mighty prayer. In mighty preaching, in mighty conversions, in mighty assemblies, in mighty holiness, in mighty generosity, in mighty grassroots evangelism, with mighty impact on society, under mighty leaders, in mighty combat, because those who are involved have the heart of Jesus and have the righteousness of Jesus. And have the holiness of Jesus. And now they want to have daily repentance. Daily forgiveness. And daily holiness. Through the presence of the Spirit of God. When He fills us. It will keep the Chernobyl plant on the inside under control. And we are moving to the glory of God. This is it for this morning. Let me pray. Father God, in the name of the Lord Jesus, how thankful I was when I got this passage assigned to me. It's awesome. It's awesome. 
And I ask you, Lord, that we will believe the path. We will embrace it. We put our arms around it. And I want to say to you, Lord, do it. Give it to us. Give it to us. Give it to us. We are born again. And we want to have, we want to have daily forgiveness. And we want to have daily holiness. Lord God Almighty, give it to us. I plead with you. And then we indeed pray for our nation and our president. And we ask you that we may honor the king because we fear God. And that we will walk out in the midst of this, this world with the incredible message of our Lord Jesus. Who says, come unto me, you are heavy laden. And I will give you my heart in regeneration, my righteousness in justification, and my holiness in sanctification. And when you have that heart of Jesus, you can see and enter the kingdom. When you have my righteousness, you have peace with God. And when you have my holiness, you can see me and you can see God and you can fellowship with him. Grant, Lord, that this message may be the, the hunger of our heart and also the content of our lips. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.